Job chapter 15 is where we're turning this morning. Job 15 begins a second cycle of speeches between the brothers, the brothers, the friends, and Job. And we have heard from each of these men before, Eliphaz and and Bildad and Zophar, and if we were to summarize their teaching, their doctrine, their rubric, their way that they understand and interpret every aspect of life, without exceptions, without fail, without any kind of uh, uncertainty, it would be this way, that suffering follows sin and blessing follows piety. Suffering follows sin, blessing follows piety. Job is suffering, therefore in that, you know, insert suffering comes out sin, right? That's what, that's what happens. And Job, if you want to have that blessing again and all these wonderful things that God provides, you just need to repent. You need to get back on God's good side and it'll all be fine. Now we kind of smirk at that. We who are far removed from the situation say, well, didn't they read verse one of chapter one, the first sentence of the book that Job was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil? There's not, the issue is not sin, going on here. And we could read, we'll rehearse it, but chapter one and chapter two, why is this happening to Job? And it comes down to, if you don't mind, not an issue of, of human suffering and, and sin. That, that's that's the, the context of it. But the main root of this whole book really is the worship of God. Is God worthy of worship? Is he in himself? Forget all of his blessings, all the, all the stuff that he adds or doesn't add to his followers. But is God worthy of worship? Satan says, no, you're not. You have to bribe. You have to pay off your followers because hey, you're not worthy. You're not, you aren't sufficient in yourself for people to really follow after you. Job knows that, that it, the issue is God. The issue is submitting to his wisdom. He doesn't understand it. He he's, finds fault with that. Even we'll see it in the course of our study this morning. But he says, God is sovereign. That's what all the friends would say. God is sovereign. Yes, he's sovereign. But he always acts this way. And Job says, well, no, obviously I'm an exception. And besides, there's so many exceptions in the world that what you say does not work. Your model is faulty. And so this is the basic uh, follow, basic pattern of what we'll see in these uh, speeches. Thankfully, they're a little bit shorter, which is to say the friend's speeches are a little bit shorter. And Job responds um, in many words and, and conflicting words. Sometimes we'll see Job you just said this, but now you're saying the exact opposite. What's the deal, Job? And you think he, he is so heavy laden with the suffering, the pain, the physical pain in his body, but even more so, where's God? Why hasn't he spoken? I, I thought that we had this good relationship and he is distant. He's not, he is not just distant, he is against me. He's shot his arrows at me and I'm just, I'm undone, I'm ruined. And I'm, I'm falling apart before my very eyes. But where is God? And so you see this contest, and, and of course the friend's answer is, well, God is right there. You just need to return to him. But he fears God. Job does. So we see in chapter 15, Eliphaz is speaking, and he will follow a, a particular pattern here. The first uh, several verses are, Job, you're just wickedly foolish. You don't know what you're talking about. And he says in verse 2, he speaks about himself, of course, should a wise man such as me, he's very congratulating to himself, should the wise man answer you with windy, this person with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? In other words, he's just saying, look, Job, you're foolish. You don't know what you're talking about. You just have all this whole diatribe of words, but they are just nothing. 
In fact, they're, they're worse than nothing. They are destructive. This east wind is rem- reminiscent, if you don't mind, of what happened to Job's children, that they were in a house and of great wind off the desert came and uh, attacked the four corners of the house and it fell and all the kids, all the young people died in that house. And so Eliphaz is comparing Job's word to this east wind that comes off and is very destructive to himself and to other people that would listen to him. Verse 3 says, should he argue? Again, should me, Eliphaz, argue with a word that cannot be used or with speech that's not profitable? What you're saying is not helpful, Job, and, and I don't even know how to, how to respond to you. Indeed, verse 4 says, you annul reverent fear and cut off musing before God. Eliphaz is accusing Job or warning Job, I suppose, saying, what you're saying, you're, you're irreverent. You are not speaking rightly about God which is interesting. If you've read the whole book or read the last chapter, you'll find out, no, it's the friends who weren't speaking rightly about God. Job did speak rightly about God. We think really all the things, even we'll see Job accusing God of, of not just withholding justice, but actually perverting, twisting justice. That God is treating Job unjustly. We'll consider all that here as we go on. But Eliphaz is concerned for Job. Look what you're doing your, your sin is troubling and you're compounding it by the words, these, these violent, irreverent words coming out of your mouth. And he says, look, I know what's going on. Verse 5, your iniquity, whatever it is, I don't know what your iniquity is, but your iniquity teaches your mouth and you choose the tongue of the crafty. So Eliphaz says, whatever sin you are cherishing in your heart, that's, bec- that's, that's influencing and directing the words that you speak. Obviously, I know this whole thing about you're innocent. You're not innocent. We all know because you're suffering. And so suffering always follows sin. So just admit it. You choose. This is a deliberate action that it is uh, something that he he's weighed the alternatives. He says, I, I suppose I could. This is Eliphaz thinking what Job is thinking in his heart. I, I could choose to confess my sin and come clean before God. But then he says, no, I'm going to choose the tongue of the crafty. I'm going to convert or pervert all these things. But look, verse 6 your own mouth condemns you. We know it. I'm not condemning you. You said it yourself. Your own lips answer against you. Which, by the way, is a concern that Job had if we were ever able to stand before God that he would be undone. He would speak what is right, but God would somehow change it and and contort it and somehow he'd be accusing himself even though he's there to defend himself. It would just be something that he would be unable to do. Eliphaz says, you are speaking wickedly, foolishly. It's just, it's wrong. And now he impugns, beginning of verse 7, he impugns his, his wisdom. He, he says, look, were you the first man to be born? Are you older than the hills, he even says, brought forth before the hills? Did you hear or do you hear the secret counsel of God and cut down wisdom only to yourself? Remember the accusation that Job had against the friends, surely you are the people and wisdom will die with you. He's, Eliphaz is turning it back on him. Oh, so you're the smart one here. You think you're smarter than us. We've got this all figured out. If you just listen to us, you are, you're so full of yourself. Verse 9, what do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that's not with us? We know. We're the, we have the answer. We are the answer people. And he says, look, we are the gray-haired. We're the aged, older people than your father. We're trying to help you. Verse 11, are the consolations of God too small for you, even the word spoken gently with you? And you think, really? Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar have been trying to console? Well, yes, in their rubric, right? Suffering follows sin. Job, you're a sinner. You're suffering. You're a sinner. So therefore, we're going to try to help you turn back to God. So they're offering it 
in their perspective in a gentle fashion and a consoling, comforting fashion, but it's not. And Job will come back and say, you are worthless physicians. You, what you're doing is not just, not just not helping, it is hurting me. It is violent and wickedness. It is, it is hurtful to my whole situation. How can suffering be with one who is upright and, and before God and innocent? I declare my innocence. And so Eliphaz says, we're speaking on behalf of God, which Job had already warned them. Oh, you're, you're speaking on behalf of God, are you? You better be careful because you are bearing false witness about God. You are claiming he does things always, always, always the same way. And he doesn't. We can look at any number of exceptions. So Eliphaz is really putting himself on the pedestal and saying, Job, you're, you're just all mess. Why does, verse 12, why does your heart take you away? And why do your eyes flash? Why should you turn your spirit against God and allow such words to go out of your mouth? The words, the, the meditation of Job's heart is very evident in his flashing eyes, you know, the anger, the, the rage even that Job has. And he's talked about his rage. He gives full vent to his, his frustration, his disappointment is a weak way to describe it. it just absolutely, he's undone in these whole things. But he says, you need to control yourself. Job, get a handle on your, on your situation of life because you are just speaking things that are not right. You have empty claims to wisdom and you're overreacting. Job, get a grip. And you th- again, we, we're far removed from it now. We haven't read it recently. Job, one and chapter, Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, what the suffering Job has endured at that time and what he continues to endure as a result of this after weeks or months of, of this uh, great calamity befalling him. And so, yeah, there's a reason why Job is responding this way. And yet, Eliphaz says, well, there's a simple solution, Job. Just confess your sin and, and not, by the way, not what the Job's wife said, curse God and die. No, Eliphaz and all the friends says, you curse yourself or, or acknowledge your sin and, and uh, God will bless you and restore to you all the stuff that he took away from you. He says, verse 14, that lesson that he mentioned in his first speech, what is man that he should be pure or, who is, or he who is born of a woman that he should be righteous. He says, look, this is the opposite of what Daniel, or excuse me, David said in Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you take thought of him. But it, it, in that thought, in that perspective, it is a gracious, condescending, helpful thought. God, you're such in the heavens and you give thought to us. It was a comforting thought. Here, Eliphaz means it in a, in a negative way. Who is God or who is man rather that God should take any thought of him? Why, why would God have any regard? Because he, he even finds fault See it, see it there in verse 15. He has puts no faith in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less he, one who is abominable and corrupt man who drinks unrighteousness like water. So Eliphaz has a very good understanding of human depravity, but not for himself, for the other person. Job, you, you're, you drink unrighteousness. So there's some sin in your life that is his problem. God finds fault with his angels, his heavenly angels, and the heavens even aren't pure. So how much less can we or not we, you over there, you people, you know, people like you, criminal types, you guys, you are just so, how do you even put it into words? God hates you, doesn't give any thought to you. Why, why shouldn't he kill you? Why shouldn't he wipe you out? You're just wicked. Job, get a grip. If you just listen to me, verse 17, it's a little bit change of what he, what he does here toward the end of the chapter. He says, look, if you just listen to me, this is the way it happens. This is how you understand life. Bad things happen to bad people. 
And we would affirm that, but not ultimately, not, not temporally sometimes. Ultimately, yes, but temporally, no. A lot of good things happen to bad people, humanly speaking, temporally speaking. Man, they're the rich, they're the all secure. And, and Job is going to list a lot of these things. But he says, Eliphaz comes back in verse 17 to the end of the chapter. He says, look, I'm going to tell you what I have experienced. I'm going to tell you what I've learned from wise people. Tradition has told us this. And you can read it there. Verse 20, the wicked man rise in pain all his days and numbered are the years stored up for the ruthless. And so, boy, wouldn't that be nice? You know, sometimes you read the imprecatory Psalms. The imprecatory is praying down God's judgment upon evildoers. And you think, whoa, you kind of get blushed or, you know, get all bothered about what David or others are saying about these evildoers. And God smite, smite them and strike them down and all these nasty things. Eliphaz says that's what happens. That's absolutely what happens. The wicked man writhes in pain. It's always horrible for him. Every day, Job, you're a perfect. Like, tell me about your, your woes, Job, because you are a perfect example of a, how does he say? A wicked man and a ruthless man. Job, I don't know what your sin is. I thought you were a fine, upstanding fella. But now we see the real truth because you are suffering and God is, is against you. And he, he goes on and describes all these, these things that are absolutely always true of the wicked man. Sounds of dread are in his ears, while a peace, the destroyer, comes upon him. You know, he's just sitting, minding his own business, and then somebody comes and, and destroys him. It's kind of remind, reminiscent of, remember those Sabaeans and the Chaldeans who came and took away Job's stuff, his livestock, and, and the killed the servants and all. Kind of reminds you that, you know, Eliphaz is thinking, hey, what happened to you, Job? Yeah, that's what happens to ruthless and wicked man all the time. Hmm. He does not believe that he'll return from darkness. He's destined for the sword. He wanders about for food, saying, where, where is that food? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at his hand. Distress and anguish terrify him. I could read all this thing. He's basically saying this horrible, horrible situation for those who are apart from Christ and wickedly, wickedly wicked, if you don't mind the redundancy there, that God is always, always, always against these people. And they are, like even verse 28 his houses are destined to become ruins. It's just it's ruination and despair. He'll not become rich. His wealth will not endure. His grain will not stretch out over the land. In fact, he, he won't have enough grain, seed to, to plant in all over his fields. And just a bad situation. And he's going to die early. I'm kind of summarizing what, what Eliphaz is saying. He will, verse 32, when his days are not yet fulfilled, his palm branch is not, and his palm branch is not green, he will drop off his unripe grape like the vine and will cast off his flower like the olive tree. He's going to die prematurely, just end of life, and it's going it's to be horrible. And he says in verse 35, summary, they conceive trouble and give birth to wickedness and their belly prepares deception. Bad things happen to bad people. Job, and there's no appeal here, by the way. It used to be in the first cycle of speeches, there was an appeal. Job, if you just return to the Lord, if you just confess your sin, if you just turn from your wickedness, then God will restore all these things to you. There's no appeal. Eliphaz does not have an appeal. It's a warning. This is what life is like for the unbeliever. This is what life is like for the wickedly foolish. Always, always horrible, writhing in pain all the time. And you think, hmm, I don't see that happening. I see almost the exact opposite. It's the righteous people who are suffering. And, and, and I, you know, not to get a victim complex, but, but say, we, we don't see this rule applied exclusively or comprehensively or singularly across this world as 
Eliphaz is describing. I've seen it. I always see it. This is what has happened for, for decades, centuries, in fact. And this is the way it is. And Job responds, chapters 16 and 17. He says, look, you're not helping, which is kind of an understatement. Again, I've heard many such things. Troublesome comforters are you all. Again, they, try, they meant, I suppose, and give the benefit of the doubt to some degree. The friends were trying to comfort him. But he says, kind of oops, turning back the, the statement that Eliphaz said about Job being the windy-worded fella. No, Eliphaz, you're the one. Is there no end to your windy words? Or what pains you that you answer? Why, why are you talking? Why, what is, what is so, what's the burr under your saddle? What's the, the thing that is so offensive to you that you feel obliged to speak? Just listen. Why don't you quiet your mouth? And let me speak to you. And he says, look, if the tables were turned, if I was in your situation and you were in my situation, verse 4, I could speak like you. I could follow this pattern that sin follows suffering and all this. But I would want to encourage you, verse 5, I would want to encourage you with my mouth and the solace of my lips could lessen your pain here. I want to help you. I want to give you, if if our situations were switched, I would want to help you. But what you're doing is not helping. And he goes back and says, look, God has shattered me. God has destroyed me. He has done it. He is doing it. I don't don't see any hope. I don't see any, in this life, I don't see any change. I don't see a recovery of my health. Certainly my children are gone. They're dead. My flocks, you know, took me years to get all these things, servants and and the reputation. But apart from all that, where, why is God against me? Why is he des- making me desolate? Verses 6, to, or, yeah, six 7 or so to uh, verse 17, he just speaks to God, a lament in some regards to God that his health is destroyed, his reputation is destroyed, he's made desolate all my company, this is his own household, his children are gone, his wife has, you know, she's said that one sentence and then we don't see her again other than at the end of the book, most likely she's the mother of the children that God restores to him, and yet he is abandoned, isolated, lonely, uh, his reputation is destroyed, people hate him, mock him, scorn him, people that he wouldn't have given a second thought to, they come over and say, oh, there's Job sitting on the ash heap, probably right outside the city, and, and oh, that one who was so great, we know he's really a sinner because all this, these bad things have happened. And Job knows he's innocent, Job knows he has a blameless status before God, not because he's sinless, but because he has dealt honestly with his sin before God and sacrifices and, and faith in him. So he has this this opposition that reminds us here, uh, verse 9, for example, his anger, God's anger has torn me and hunted me down. This is imagery here. Again, this is poetry, Hebrew poetry. It's a lot of metaphors, a lot of imagery that's brought in. This image in verse 9 is like a wild beast. God is acting like a wild beast against Job. He has torn me. Uh, he's hunted me down. He has gnashed at me with his teeth and he sharpens his eyes. My adversary sharpens his eyes to look at me. It's that idea that Satan is the adversary, right? The accuser of the brethren back in chapter 1 and chapter 2. But now Job regards God as being against him, his adversary, one who is who's hunting him down to destroy him. Verse 10 goes on and talks about not just God himself, but he has other opponents. And maybe he's looking at his friends being, you know, they open their mouth wide at me. Ah, oh, they're going to talk all kind of words, and they, they have struck me on the cheek in reproach. 
don't know if physically, he, if Job has been struck, but he, he feels that way, that people are just beating on him, which kind of reminds you, I mean, verse 10, does, does that, if you were to transport yourself to the foot of the cross of Christ, would you perhaps think of, they have opened their mouth wide at me in mocking scorn, they have struck me on the cheek, didn't that happen to our Lord Jesus? They have massed themselves against me, not just the, the Jews, but the Gentiles also gathered against me. And my own disciples have abandoned me. So we see Job being kind of uh, a prefigurement of our Lord Jesus in this regard. And then God hand, hands me over, verse 11, and tosses me into the hands of the wicked. I, I was doing fine, but he shattered me. And he has grasped me by the neck and shaken me to pieces and set me up as his target. This is what Job feels like toward, toward God or, or God's work toward him. His arrows surround me without mercy. He splits my kidneys open. He pours out my gall on the ground. And so we go from the image of a wild beast now to a warrior or a warfare situation. And verse 14, he breaks through me with breach after breach. He runs at me like a warrior. Remember Satan's accusation. Well, you've, you've put a hedge about Job and all that he has. No wonder he, he wants to honor you. And Job says, no, he has broken through every hedge of protection that I thought I had. And he runs at me like a warrior, and I just, I can't do anything. Verse 15, I am in mourning. I have thrust my horn in the dust. And you think, what? And the kind of trumpet, he's a trumpeter, trombone maybe, French horn. No, it's not that kind of horn. It's the image of a wild animal, strong, you know, the strength of a wild animal in his horn. And that horn is now in the dust. It is it is destroyed. It is defeated. Job says, I'm defeated. I have no power. I don't have anything. My face is flushed from weeping. The shadow of death is on my eyelids. Why? Because there's no violence in my hand. I don't deserve this. I don't know why this is happening. My prayer is pure before God. Remember, Eliphaz is accusing Job of speaking irreverently. Job says, I'm, there's nothing changed in my speech to God, in my activity toward God. All of a sudden, destruction has come upon me. I don't understand this. Again, he doesn't have the benefit of what we have benefit of, spoken of in, in chapters 1 and 2. And he's, he ends up here in verses 18 and following. I don't understand what's happening on earth, but I know that I have an advocate. Remember, he's speaking of defense, a legal defense before God. And he says, look, earth, do not cover my blood. Let there be no resting place for my cry. This is verse 18. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven and my advocate is on high. So he says... Remember the, the blood of the righteous from Abel to Zechariah that Jesus mentioned when back in Genesis 4 when Abel dies and, and God said to Cain who killed him, right? The blood of your brother is a witness against you that you killed him. And so Job says, look, my blood is, is laying on this, on this earth and let it be a witness that I've been wronged. There, let there be no resting place for my pleas, for my cries for justice. And he says, my witness, this is in a legal sense, my witness is in heaven, my advocate is on high. So a witness, an advocate, somebody who's going to speak on Job's behalf, a, def a defense attorney, a, a witness, is going to speak to God in heaven, not on earth. He has said it here, or I think another speech, he says, my issue is not with you, my issue is with God, and I demand I mean, he goes so far as to say that I demand uh, an audience with God so I can defend myself, even though I know I'm going to be undone. It's probably going to be the death of me, but I've got to have justice. I've got to have a vindication of my faith in God. If, if I can't be vindicated in this regard, it doesn't matter what happens to me. If I can have a right relationship with God, kill me. Just kill me now. 
But who is this advocate? Who is this witness that he's talking about in verse 19? This witness that he had spoken of before, recognize, we'll speak of in just a moment, this one who is, who is able to lay a hand on God and lay a hand on Job and bring them together to bring justice, to, to say, God, you've, you've got a claim or you've got this, this statement or this belief or whatever. Job, you have this. Let's get you together so there can be a vindication, a reconciliation. And Job says, there's, there's nobody on earth can do that. I mean, I can't do that. I can't lay my hand on God and somehow bring him down. And God's going to reiterate that with the image of Behemoth and Leviathan in chapters 40 and 41. So you think you can control them? You can't control them. You, how much less can you control me? And Job knows that. I know I can't control you. But I want a relationship with you, God. I need that relationship. And I've got to have this testimony about me. We'll see it more carefully in chapter 19. We'll return to this idea. But he says, look, my friends are my scoffers. My eye weeps to God. I have no defense. I know help, humanly speaking. No, I have no recourse, no return, no comfort from my people. I'm speaking to God himself. Verse 21, oh, that a man might argue with God as a man with his neighbor. Oh, now that would be something. If we could have somebody who would not frighten me so much. Remember his plea to God? Uh, just to remove a little bit of this the suffering for me, give me enough stamina so I can defend myself before you. And then would you not frighten me by your presence because you're just so awesome and I would be undone. So how could a man argue with God as a man speaks with his neighbor? Not going to happen unless God somehow condescended and came in a form that would be able to relate man with God. And then he returns to verse 22. I'm going to die. And you think, Job, what are you doing? He, he's just all over the place. And he goes on in chapter 17 describing, I'm, I'm, I have expectation of death. I'm not going to live. I am broken. Verse 7, verse 7, chapter 17, verse 1, my spirit is broken. My days are extinguished. Oh, my grave is ready for me. Huh? There's my, my place. The headstone is already, you know, Job, you know, whatever date to today. He's going to die. He's going to be buried. And mockers are with me. I look all around me. People aren't here to comfort me. They're here to mock me, scorn me, cause all kind of ridicule against me. And he says, God, I need you to come to my defense. I need you to pay my bail, as it were, is kind of the idea, this legal uh, language in verse 3. Establish now a pledge for me with yourself. Who is there that will clap my hand and pledge? You've got to be my defense. You've got to be my refuge. You have hidden their heart from They don't understand what's going on. They're, they speak according to their very tight, reasoned logic, but they don't know what they're talking about. They are... are speaking what is not helpful to me. It goes on in uh, these next several verses talking about the undoneness of him. Uh, God has made me a byword of the people, verse 6. My eye has grown dim because of grief, all these tears that he has, all the the suffering, all the uh, just horrible, horrible situation he's going through. And he, again, I'm, I'm skipping over some of these things because he does repeat himself. He just pictures the idea, paints the idea, I am just... I've got nothing. And there's, there's things that are, are just twisted beyond what I think, humanly speaking, can be undone. If, and he says, look, if I were to hope for death, if I were to hope for Sheol, verse 13, as my home and I make my bed in the darkness, if I call to the pit, hey, you're my father and the worm, my mother and sister, where's my hope? If he makes just family intimate relationships with grave and death and Sheol, that's his only consolation, his only comfort in life. He's got nothing. 
I've got no hope. Verse 15. Where's my, where now is my hope? Who beholds my hope? Will it go down with me to Sheol? Should we go together, together go down into the dust? Nah. There's this, this contrast of, of thoughts. I know my advocate's in heaven. I've got to have justice from God. But I'm going to die. I'm going to die soon. And where's justice after that? I've got to have justice now. If I don't, what hope do I have? We'll see that he does have a hope in chapter 19. But first, Bildad has some words. Bildad, oh, the mighty, mighty warrior Bildad. The Shuhite answered and said, oh, how dare you, Job? I mean, that's kind of the, the attitude in these first few verses. Bildad is more taken aback or affronted by the accusation Job has against oh so against the friends oh so we're worthless counselors oh so we're the the unhelpful physicians we're the we're the people who cause more pain than we're trying to help oh well why don't you just quiet your mouth why don't you just stop talking why are we regarded as beasts as dense in your eyes as foolishness as as just dumb you who tear yourself up in your anger. For your sake is the earth to be forsaken or the rock to be moved from its place. We know what we're talking about, Job. Why do you demand everything, the whole existence of life to be changed for your situation? Because this law is inviolable. This law of suffering follows sin. We know that. Blessing follows piety. We know that. Job, why are you looking for exceptions? Why do you demand your day in court? Why are you making such a big deal of this thing? We know what we're talking about. And he just says, you, 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 you are so arrogant. Which, you think, really, Job's the arrogant one? He's sitting in an he's covered, and they're speaking all these foolishnesses to him. And he says, you're the arrogant one? No. But he paints this picture. Again, he's not here to appeal to Job. He says, this, this is your destiny. Well, two things. This is your current situation. The wicked are perishing. Job, you're perishing. You're a wicked person. But it's also a look toward the future. The wicked will perish and always perish. And this is what you can expect, Job. And there's no appeal. There's no consolation. This is just Bildad saying, I wish God would strike you down right now because that's what happens to wicked people. Verse 5, Indeed, the light of the wicked goes out. The flame of his fire gives no light. The light in his tent is darkened and his lamp goes out above him. You think, whoa, that's a lot of words. He speaks three different ways, four different ways. Three different ways of light, light, flame of his fire, and lamp. He, he's just saying what would be an indication of safety, of security, of, of wealth and prosperity is having a light, having a lamp burning, a you know, physical oil lamp or whatever uh, means they had at that age where, where they, would, they would have light in their dwelling. He says, no, it's going to be snuffed out, turned out. It's going to be undone. That's what happens to the wicked. His vigorous stride, you know, he walks about such like a powerful guy, but he is going to be shortened. His, his stride is going to be shortened and his own counsel is going to bring him down. His own plans will be frustrated. He'll be undone. And then he has these different, I think six different statements about uh, nets or snares or traps here in verses um, eight and following. He is thrown into the net by his own feet. He steps on the netting and a snare seizes him by the heel and a device snaps shut at him. A rope for him is hidden in the ground and a trap for him on the path. So he says, look, you're in danger. You are being trapped. You're being hunted. You're going to fall. You're going to be undone. It's, it's not going to be well for you. And so that's what happens to the wicked people. Job, you're a wicked person. And uh, we have ex- every expectation that God will just finish the, finish the job very soon. Uh, verse 11 and following, he talks about the terrors that, that afflict him all the time. 
It's always frightened, always anxious, always about some, some hidden uh, person is going to come up and harass him, verse 11, harass him at every step. And he's just, he's undone. He, he's not eating well. He's not sleeping well. His vigor is famished. Uh, he, he's, his body is wasting away, verse 13. He is torn from the security of his tent. They march him in step before the king of terrors, this idea of death being you know, this, this king of, of all kind of fright and, and dismay and so forth. Uh, horrible things happen in his tent, this brimstone that's scattered on his boat, fire, you know, fire and brimstone coming down upon him and destroying him. And then verse 16, remember how Job earlier, I was at chapter 14, I think, compared himself or at least gave hope. You know, there's hope for a tree, even if it's, if it's uh, upper story were, were destroyed, wilted away. As long as the root's still so good, hey, that tree might come back. And El, or excuse me, Bildad says no. Verse 16, his roots are dried below <laughs> and his branches cut off above. There's no hope. There's no return. Job, you're going to die just like that tree. Ah, I mean, it just takes your breath away what Bildad is speaking to him. And he, go, he gives his consolation, which isn't a consolation. Verse 17, he'll be forgotten. Nobody's going to remember him. Nobody will want to remember him. He's just so bad and so wicked. He's going to be driven from light into darkness and chased from the inhabited world. Nobody's going to celebrate him. Nobody's going to put museums up in his honor. It's, it's this, and a little bit later, Job is going to put this picture. No, I, I've seen plenty of wicked people celebrated and remembered because, of, because people are kind of afraid of them. And even in death, they're still afraid of his power and his, his, uh, his fame. Think of Herod the Great. Herod the Great died and was buried, pomp and circumstance and, and wicked nastiness going on there. But then his tomb was hidden for, well, unknown, didn't know where it was for 2,000 years or so. It was recently discovered and we see, whoa, he had all these beautiful things around him in death even. I'm a wicked, wicked, wicked guy. But, oh, no, he, he's doing fine in the afterlife as, as he had expectation. Contrary to what Bildad is claiming. Verse 19, Bildad says, they, This wicked person has neither offspring nor posterity among his people, nor any survivor where he sojourned. He has no, there's no, nobody left of his family. They're all dead. And people are just seized with terror. And he summarizes verse 21, Surely such are the dwellings of the unjust, and this is the place of him who does not know God. Job, you don't know God. We do. We speak on his behalf. You just listen to me. Listen to us, because we, we know what we're talking about. And you will end up just like them, because you don't know what you are talking about. You don't know God. Job responds, chapter 19, with, again, a, a conflicting statement. I've got a complaint with God. My complaint is not with you guys. You guys are taking unnecessary offense at my words. You guys are just making mountains out of molehills. My issue is with God, if he would just listen to me. Job says, how long, verse 2, how long will you torment my soul and crush me with words? What they, again, maybe possibly will give them the benefit of the doubt that they tried to come and comfort Job, but you're crushing me. Your wisdom would be for you just to remain silent. Just be quiet. This is not helping me at all. And he's been keeping count, verse 3, these 10 times you've dishonored me. And you're not ashamed that you wronged me. And verse 4 says, look, if, if I've truly erred, then that, you know, I've got to bear that. I, that error lodges with me. But you guys, you are acting in error. You are against me, a righteous guy. And you're speaking unwisely, untruly, untruthfully about God. 
And he says, verse 5, if, if truly you magnify yourselves against me and argue my disgrace to me, know then that God has wronged me and he has closed his net around me. This is a direct contravention to what Bildad said. Does God pervert justice? No, by no means will he do it. And Job says, he does. He did to me. I feel his injustice toward me. I'm a person who fears him, wants to please him, and this is what comes of me. I don't understand it. Verse 7 and following, he says, look, God is against me. I'm crying. I cry violence. People are being violent against me, and nobody answers me. Heaven is silent. My people, my friends are speaking foolishness against me. I shout for help, but there's no justice. He, God, again, returning that hedge imagery, God has walled up my way so I cannot pass, and he's put up darkness on my paths. Again, a hedge can be a, a means of protection, as Satan mentioned back in chapter 1, or and 2, I think, 1 anyway, he says that. And Job says, no, that's not how I perceive it. His hedge is debilitating me, it's pressing me in, it's, it's, it's trapping me, and I don't feel any, any benefit from this thing. He has stripped my honor from me, removed the crown from my head. The honor that, that he used to have, no, nah, he doesn't have that anymore. Nobody looks to him. Hey, Job, you're such a good, no, you're not a good counselor anymore, Job. You're under God's wrath because you're a wicked person. We're not going to listen to you. He breaks me down on every side and I'm gone. He has uprooted my hope like a tree. He has kindled his anger. I'm just all these things that he's speaking about. God is against me. Verse 13 turns it from God to now his people around him. Nobody pities me. Everybody's against me. How's that poem go? I think I'll go eat worms or something. I mean, that kind of belittles the issue. He says, no, everybody is against me. Nobody has any kind of compassion for me. My brothers are removed far from me, which we haven't met them yet. But later in chapter 42, we're going to see when God restores Job to himself and himself to Job, that his brothers and other household members come and console Job. And you think, where have they been? Well, Job says, they are far from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. I don't know why everybody's against me. I don't know why I have no human companionship. I, everybody has has removed themselves from me. Possibly they think, oh, we don't want to associate with Job, the wicked, the object of God's wrath. We've got to be we've got to be on God's side in this regard. But Job's the one on God's side. Job is the one who says God is worthy of worship, even though I don't understand it, even though He's taken everything everything from me. God is my advocate. God is my, we'll see it in this chapter, my redeemer, the one who redeems my soul. But I just feel so undone. I, I don't understand what's going on. Those, uh, verse 14, relatives, familiar friends have forgotten me. Verse 15, those who sojourn in my house, so guests, household guests, and his servants, his maidservants, they they don't regard me. They think me a stranger. They certainly don't do my bidding. They, you know, I'm a foreigner in their sight. I call to my servant, but he does not answer. I have to implore him with my mouth. But my breath is offensive to my wife, and I'm loathsome to my own brothers. I mean, he goes on and just says, look, this is horrible. My whole situation is bad, bad, bad news. Verse 22 says, why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh? You just want to destroy me? You just want to everything that I might look to for, for any measure of comfort you want to take from me? Just destroy my life. And he says, look, verse uh, 23 Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Hey, you all have one of those? It's right here. His whole record is written down for us in exactly what Job had asked for. Oh, that my words were written, that they were inscribed in a book, that with an iron stylus and lead they were engraved in rock forever. He wants this not to be a temporary 
account. He wants everybody, like, I don't know, 4,000 years later, to know about his situation. God answered his prayer in this regard. He says, look, this is, my, this is the record of Job. This is my situation. This is my, my past situation, my present situation, my confidence. Verse 25, as for me, you guys speak from your own experience and your own tradition, but as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will rise up over the dust of this world. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall behold God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another, but my heart faints within me. So we see just this tremendous, grand celebration of God being his refuge, his his Redeemer. There's no no other person that he could be speaking of in this regard. God is his Redeemer. But in the contrast is, I, I don't think I'm going to make it. I don't think I'm going to make it to that judgment day, that time of justice before God. My heart faints within me. And he concludes in that regard. But he says several things. As for me, contrast to you guys, you keep doing what you're doing because obviously you're not going to change. As for me, this is my resolution. I have absolute confidence. I myself know. So we see that from his statement. I myself know. But then he says, my Redeemer. It's not just a Redeemer. I know that somewhere out there, there's going to be somebody, somebody going to come to my aid. No, I know. Not just a generic person. I know my Redeemer in heaven lives. He's not just somebody who is a temporal living like humans. He is the one, the living God, right? He is the one who, obviously, is part of his existence, part of his identity. He is a living God. My Redeemer lives. This word redeemer has the idea of one who buys back, who, who redeems uh, something, who, who restores to rightful ownership. It has later an idea uh, in especially Levitical law, so law of Moses, and also very much portrayed in the, uh, the book of Ruth. This idea of redemption, a, a redeemer that comes forward to, and you'll have to read Ruth to find out of it, but there, there's an aspect in the Levitical law and on Ruth that it's not just a redeemer out there, but it's a redeemer that is right closely related to you. What we, maybe have, you've heard the term kinsman redeemer. Job says, that's, that's who I need. I need a kinsman redeemer. And okay, maybe we're being a little anachronistic, out of, out of order here. But we recognize, even back from say 2,000 years before Job, if Job is about 2,000 BC, go another 2,000 years back to the time of Adam, that from the seed of woman would arise somebody to bring victory to people. And so there's that idea, okay, so he's going to be a human, but Job has already said, I need somebody who's not just human, but also God who can come and bring justice to me, a just verdict in my regard, because I do have faith and absolute love and enjoyment and delight in God, but I don't know what's going on in this world. I know my Redeemer, my kinsman, my, my, this one who's able to bring us together. He lives. He lives and he's concerned about me. He will rise up over the dust of this world. And he's the one who will reveal himself to Job specifically. Even my skin will be destroyed, but from my flesh. We see you know, the outward skin, but also the, the, the meat of our bodies. From our flesh, he is expecting in some, some way, there's a lot of discussion over I, the, the idea of resurrection and the, and the ancient uh, peoples. But here is what, on the face of it, seems like he's, he's saying, I'm going to die, but from my flesh I shall behold God. He uses three different times he talks about seeing God himself. Not just perceiving God like a spirit, but seeing him from his body. Well, he knows his body is wasting away and going to die. It's dusting and turning 
you know, put it in the grave, I shall see God. I'm going to not be confused. He's going to be the one. He is going to be the victor. He's going to be absolutely what what is spoken of Saul. We were reading through First Samuel. This guy Saul, who was appointed first king of Israel, was head and shoulders above all the other people. Obviously, he's king because he's the tallest among us, right? He's the distinguished one. God is the distinguished one. I'm going to recognize him, and I'm not going to be confused by saying, oh, is it that guy? Is it that guy? No, there he is. He's the one. I will see him. I have that great confidence in that day that he will be my redeemer. He will be the one who brings me justice. But then he says at the end of verse 27, I don't know if I'm going to make it. My heart faints within me. And he says against his friends, you guys, you better take warning because he's coming. He's going to be my redemption, but he's got something different in store for you. You better watch out. These people, verse uh, 28, these people says, you know, we're, we're against Job. We're, we're saying, how can we cause more mayhem and trouble for him today? And he says, you be, you be afraid of the sword for yourselves, verse 29, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword so that you may know there's judgment. You think you're just, all these, this is just fun and games and, and we're just, we're speaking and these words don't really matter. God is listening. And he will bring judgment because you are speaking wickedly foolish things. You're accusing me of these things, but it's you guys who are misrepresenting God and totally mischaracterizing me. I'm the, I'm the faithful one. Well, last speech here, chapter 20. Zophar is the one who speaks. And this is the last time we hear from Zophar. He's, he's done after this time. And it's almost like he, he's, he's convinced in his mind that, Bill, excuse me, that Job is not going to change. I'm just going to set, I'm going to unload all my animation against him and then be silent because he, there's no hope for Job. All I've got to do is, is portray this picture of, of judgment upon the wicked people and just be done. Wash my hands, shake my head at him, you know, shake the dust off my sandals because he, Job is not going to listen. He appeals to him that you should listen to me. My disquieting thoughts make me respond even because of my haste within me. I've got to say these things. I, 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 I just can't stand being silent anymore. I've listened to you and you're just all these things. But he says, look, you need to know that this is the established rule. This is how things work from the establishment of man on earth. The shouts of joy of the wicked are short. The gladness of their godless is momentary. He is again portraying sin, or suffering follows sin. The wicked, bad things happen to bad people, always, 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 no exception, all the time. And he just paints this horrible, horrible perspective on the wicked people. Though his loftiness, his pride goes up to heavens, his head touches the clouds, he perishes forever like his refuse, like what goes down the sewer. That's how he's going to die or be done with. And those who have seen him will say, hey, what about that guy who used to be around here? You know that guy? And all the while, this guy was all the greatest guy on the earth, right? And then and the people don't remember him. That's how it happens with the wicked. He flies away like a dream. They cannot find him. Even like a vision of the night, he's chased away. The eye which saw him sees him no longer. His place no longer beholds him. His son, his son seek the favor of the poor. Wait a minute. You're asking a poor person for bread? Well, it's because this formerly rich person, rich wicked person, is now destitute and his kids, and he's gone dead. And now his kids are begging bread from, from poor people. And his hands give back his wealth. So he's all the stuff that he earned, he has to give to other people. And his, he dies, verse 11. So that's a happy thought, right? Well, joy of the wicked is brief. And, and then so far goes on and says, sin destroys. And which is true, right? We don't want to disagree with, with uh, Zophar here saying, no, sin is bad. And it's going to cause destruction and ruination, but not always in this life. There are plenty of examples. And this is what Job will do in chapter 21. Plenty of examples where this is not the case, where we see 
Oh, that wicked person, he's wicked. Everybody knows he's wicked, but he is so prosperous. He's doing fine. His children are just as mean-spirited as he is, and they steal and kill and all these things with impunity. Nobody finds fault with him. Everything is going fine with him. But so far says, no, sin always destroys. And he gives the example, verse 12. He tastes these things with, mouth, with his mouth, but he hides it. He even savors it under his tongue. But he, uh, verse 14, his food and his stomach is changed to the venom of cobras with him. It's going to kill him. What he has swallowed up, he swallowed up wealth, but he's going to vomit it up. God will expel it from his body. And he goes on just portraying this, this horrible, horrific death that, that so far expects to happen to the wicked people. All the way to verse 19. That he is, uh, has seized a house which he's not built. He's a thief. He's an extortioner. And then all of a sudden, death comes. There's no prolonging of, of death. There's no delaying of it. No, he's going to die suddenly, even before his, you know, his, the fulfillment of his days, you know, uh, cut short before his time, as it were. And he just describes it. Uh, there, there's going to be a sudden devastation from him. And he gives some army analogies or warfare analogies. Verse 24, he may flee from the iron weapon, but a bronze bow will pierce him. So he's retreating from battle. Think of Ahab, for example, when he's retreating from battle and somebody... Uh, a enemy a soldier at random just shot an arrow into the air and it pierced him right into his deathly blow. Well, how did that happen? Well, God wanted to kill him. And so that's what Zophar is saying. You can run away from the, the hand-to-hand combat, iron weapons, you know, swords, but a bow from a distance is going to kill him. It's a wicked person. It is drawn forth and comes out his back. So it goes, I mean, he's pretty graphic. This is, I don't know, this is hmm, pretty horrific uh, battle going on here. And it goes right through him. Bouts of dread come upon him, and he dies. The heavens will reveal his iniquity, because obviously he's a wicked, wicked person. And God is going to put it on display. All the earth will rise up against him, and it'll be horrible for him. Well, wouldn't that be nice if that were the case for wicked people? I mean, truly wicked people. We want them. God, judge them right now, because what they're doing in this earth is horrible. Horrible to your people. But that really isn't the the point of Zophar. He says, you're a wicked person. And all you can expect, Job, is death. Ruination, destruction. And Job says, oh, okay, I've listened to you. How about you listen to me? And you listen with sympathy, not for a purpose of passing judgment on what I'm saying. You listen in a, in a sense of, of wanting to understand what I'm saying, my perspective, because I'm, I know as much as you, not claiming I know more than you, but I know as much as you. And if you would just pay attention to me, bear with me, verse three, that I may speak. And after I've spoken, you can, can, there's plenty of time. You can continue mocking after I just have a moment to speak. And he says, I'm not talking to men. Why should I not be impatient? I am talking to God here in this regard. But then he gives, gives these examples of, look, the wicked prosper, verses 7. Why do the wicked still live? They continue on. That is to say they have long lives. They, they live, for one, they should die. The wages of sin is death. But these people are living, and they're living for a long time, and they're getting stronger and stronger as a result of this. Very powerful. Their seed is established with them in their presence, so they have lots of kids. Their houses are safe from dread. Everything Job is saying here is the exact opposite of what Eliphaz, Zophar, Bildad, and Zophar have said. The wicked always, always, always suffer and have ruination, short lives. Kids are destroyed. Wealth is taken away. And Job says, mm-mm. That's not what I've seen. And you guys dismiss, you think your wisdom is so pure because it's not been infiltrated or infected by foreign influence. You ask the foreigners, you ask people who travel around, and they can tell you, not just around here, but across the world, this is what happens. Wicked people sometimes prosper. And the verse 10, sometimes, a lot of times, they have 
very successful farming operations, livestock always, always uh, procreating and, and uh, happy children. Notice verse 11, they send forth their little ones like the flock and their children skip about. There's one thing for the wicked people, wicked adults to spend all their money and wealth and everything on themselves and have parties for the adults and the kids go, go without kind of thing. But he says, look, even the children are happy. Their children, the wicked people's children, because they're, they're having a grand celebration. Their life is just so easy and everything. They, they celebrate, verse 12, they lift up the tambourine and the harp. They're glad at the sound of the pipe. I mean, just having festivals all the time. They spend their days in prosperity and they suddenly, not, not um, this, this long life of, of, of living, the, the friends are saying, no, they, they, they suddenly go down to Sheol. They have this expectation of, of death and, and it's a godless existence that they have. Verse 14 and, and uh, 15 it says, they say to God, what do they say to God? Leave us alone, which is kind of what Job said, by the way, earlier. Why doesn't God just leave me alone? But here in the, in the sense of, I want nothing to do with God. God, you just take you and everything about you away from me. Depart from us. We do not even desire the knowledge of your ways. We don't want to know anything about God. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? What would we profit if we entreat him? What's in there for us? Which is essentially what Satan said. Hey, the only reason Job trusts you, God, is because of all the good stuff you give him. And here Job says, no. The wicked person is looking for the benefits of trusting God or entreating, praying to him. God hates these kind of people and there is judgment that's going to come, but it doesn't, I don't see it happening now. Why does not God, why does God not judge the wicked right now in this life? Because if, again, if you listen to the friends, they're all saying in this life, God will settle accounts in this life only in this temporal existence. God is going to do it. And not, that's not always what happens. There's not a perspective of eternity. There's not an expectation of life after death from the friends. And even Job struggles with that sometimes. He, sometimes he's on the high point of, yes, there's resurrection. Other times, not so much. Yes, there's justice with God. Yes, there is judgment, but it's not always in this life. Job says, okay, if your model is so true, then why does, not God, why does God not judge the wicked people right now? And he gives examples. How often? Exception to your, your whole claim, how often is the lamp of the wicked put out or does their disaster fall on them? Not often. Not often do they have to go without because they'd ha- they can't afford to put oil in the lamp to keep it burning or they have a disaster falling upon them. How often does God apportion destruction in his anger? And he goes on and, and talks about these, these, these things that they, we would expect. Okay, if your thing is true, then why doesn't God judge them now? Again, you can read through verse 21. He changes tack a little bit in verse 27. The claim is from the friends that the wicked people are going to waste away with nothing left to them. He says, no, wicked people even prosper when they're dead, in their death. These people come, you know, all these people come by and want to give honor and, and acclaim. Uh, verse 32, while he's led, the wicked person's led forth to the grave, men will keep watch over his tomb. They will guard it. They would say, this is where noble, wicked man so-and-so lives and we're going to guard it very carefully. Verse 33, the clods of the valley gently cover him. He has a nice, nice little um, funeral situation and, and people honor him. All men draw, draw up after him while countless one goes, be- I mean, it's a parade to take this wicked, wicked man to, to a grave. And he says, look, what you are saying has no bearing on reality. It does not reflect what God is doing. It certainly doesn't have anything to do with me. Verse 34, how then will you vainly come for me indeed when your answers remain full of falsehood? Just lies, trickery, and deceit. For what purpose? For one reason, so that the friends could 
could prove themselves, hey, we're the wise people. We got this all figured out. Trust me. Also to disassociate or dissociate the friends from Job saying, he's the wicked. We didn't do it. It's him. And we're, we're, you know, God, we're on your side and we're accusing him just like you're accusing him, obviously because he's suffering and so he's a sinner and so we're agreeing with God. And Job says, you don't know what you're talking about in so many regards. If you would just be quiet and listen to me because my issue is not with you, it's with God and I've got to have my justice from God. He finds that confidence, my Redeemer. Did you notice I, I emphasized it already? I know that my Redeemer lives as for me, the emphasis, it's about me. In other words, and this is a concluding thought, Job had a great confidence, not based on his tradition, not based on other counselors, not based on anything except what God had revealed himself to be in his life. I know, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. He can be other people's Redeemer, but I have that confidence that he is my Redeemer, my Savior, my Lord. I'm living to please him. I don't understand all of his ways concerning me. I understand why all these things are happening, but I will rest in him. I will remain true to him, even though he's acting like I wouldn't expect him to act. He's, he's you know, this justice thing that I'm after. He, he's not doing it. The confidence is that God is just, and he's the justifier of those who have faith in him. Job exercises that faith. He demonstrates it so remarkably. He does speak a little bit out of turn, as God will rebuke him. He speaks just out of his foolishness, out of his pain, out of his 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 situation and God says you you just need to stop while you're ahead trust me find me your all in all find you said you're I am your redeemer you rest in that knowledge I'll I'll vindicate you in due time I will vindicate even more than you myself that I am right and you can be right too as long as you trust me and that's the answer for us too God is right make sure that you don't follow after the pattern of the wicked say oh it's gonna be fine God does not judge the wicked oh he does and he will and if the judgment of the wicked does not happen in this world, it's not because God is somehow ignorant or somehow, oh, he got away this time. Kind of thing. No, God keeps a record of wrong. And the psalmist said, if God, if you did keep a record of wrongs, who could stand before you? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. That fear of God ought to motivate us to live a life that trusts him, that obeys him, that delights in him and finds comfort even in the confusion, the murkiness, the, the despair of life, that God is faithful. Our Father in heaven, we are so grateful that you are with us and for us, and you do speak what is true and right, and we pray that we would rest in that. We don't understand all the ways of and workings of providence, and yet we know you are good, and you're loving, and you're sovereign, you're powerful, and you are holy, and you are just, and you will bring a righteousness to light even brighter than the sun that we enjoy today. You are the one who brings the light of righteousness to those who put their faith in Christ. And so we pray that each person here would be trusting Christ wholly for life, for forgiveness, for um, the refuge that we have, especially in that day of trouble. When your judgment does come rightly upon the sons of disobedience, you destroy them. You cast them into hell along with uh, Satan and his demons. We don't want that for anyone who's here. Please may each one be reconciled to you and to be growing in you, be more like Jesus. Thank you for Job. Thank you for the testimony he had, the confidence that he had in you, certainly the despair, the disappointment, the confusion, but please help us to exercise his faith in such a horrific situation. And we who have nothing like that, we can trust you. Please help us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.